Great to have you along for Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Remember life before the internet when we relied on television, reference books, phone calls, newspapers to get the latest information? Well, if that seems like another lifetime ago, you've got a sense of what it felt like in America before and after the establishment of the railroad, you know, that connected, finally connected both of the coasts. The railroad brought access, fast access, you know, for that day. You know, it was kind of like the Internet, which came as no surprise to the engineers racing to build the railway system. The fierce rivalry between two of them included high drama, even more than the internet browser wars between AOL, remember them, Yahoo, and the mighty Google. Here to tell us the story is John Sedgwick. He's the author of From the River to the Sea, the untold story of the railroad war that made the West. Welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, you open your book uh, introducing us to these two railroad engineers, and they were from rival companies, um, ended up on the same train racing to um, claim the right to build a line. I wonder if you would take us back to that 24-hour period um, that kind of touched off this, this drama. Sure, I'd be delighted to. It's a hard, um, it's a little hard to situate yourself um, immediately because we have to go back not just to the 19th century, but to the 1870s, uh, um, where there all, where there was only one railroad line across the West, uh, the fabled Union Pacific, that was um, that got linked to the Central Pacific in. Uh, um, 1869 to create the 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 first Pacific Railroad. Okay, so that so that there had been one already, and now my two guys mm-hmm. are competing to create the second. And what happens in the West when you are um, trying to build across this unknown landscape is you never know where to go. Should you go south? Should you go west? Should you go northeast, southwest? In what direction? It's wide open. So where is the population going to be that's going to sustain your line? Where's the, where are the mines that are going to enrich your company? Where are the crops that are, you're going to grow so that you can carry these uh, um, by the train that you're building? These trains run on cash, and the cash in an unknown empty, largely empty landscape is very hard to find. So these two guys, uh, um, William Barstow Strong of the Santa Fe Railroad is coming west from Kansas, uh, bound for the Pacific at California. And he gets into Colorado at a little town called Pueblo, south of Denver where he intersects another line that's owned and run by General William pa- Jackson Palmer. Everybody in the story has three names and, <laughs> and whiskers. That's the other part of it. And you can identify them by both. That um, Palmer had this gorgeous, well-trimmed mustache. He was a former military man. He was a hero of the Civil War, and he looked the part. He was um, handsome, a great rider. Even though he uh, grew up in the East, he seemed born for the West. He loved the mountains, and it just thrilled his soul to be there. On the other hand, William Barstow Strong of the Santa Fe, that, that he had this amazing beard that ran from his chin all the way down to his waist. And what? when he spoke, <laughs> that beard shook in this grandfatherly way. You've never seen anything like it. You've got to get the book just to see the picture. <laughs> and so, the, so, so Palmer had this line, a small line called the, the Denver and Rio Grande. And it was called that because it started in Denver and it was, it was meant to sort of wind like the Rio Grande River all the way down to Mexico. And his plan was to hit the Pacific at the Mexican coast. So he was going to go to the, the Pacific, not by going west, as you might think, but by going 
phallus. Mm. Now, different way of doing it. And not only was he different in that respect, but they had a different kind of railroad. In those days, there were different, what they were called gauges. The, the width of the track was different uh, um, for a lot of different railroads until it got organized by Lincoln himself when he put uh, through the legislation for the first transcontinental, that one that I mentioned with the Union Pacific, he set the standard gauge. It was fairly wide. It was over four feet. But Palmer, being an individualist, clung to a narrow gauge line of three feet wide only. So he figured that that would make for a smaller line that could twist around the mountains of Colorado, where he figured he would primarily be going. All right, so he's going south to Mexico, and Strong is going west to California, and they intersect, as I say, this little town called Pueblo, a dusty trading town about 100 miles south of Denver. And when they intersect, the two of them go berserk. It's an amazing phenomenon because the thing is, in the West, when you're building a train line, and as I say, you don't know where to go, the best way to, the best way to make a decision is to figure out where somebody else wants to go and if they want to go there you get there first uh, and then you have it and they don't mm-hmm. and you then can ride on their research and their analysis but the key thing is to get there first well both of them came to the conclusion that, that the way to get across the west was across this narrow passage called the Rattan pass that was at the bottom of Colorado, where it crosses into New Mexico. This was, the Rutan Pass had been discovered years back by pioneers headed west on the Independence Trail, and that that went over the Rutan Pass. And the, the same reason these people on wagons and on foot wouldn't want to go on across the Rattan Pass. That was the same reason that a train would. It was the only easy passage through the lower portion of the Rocky Mountains. And But the, question, the, the thing that was difficult for them was that, okay, you go across the Rattan Pass, and then what? Where do you go to? What, what, how are you going to get your revenues back? And that was the reason that Palmer had had the idea that he, from long before, that he would go across the Rattan Pass. But he was worried because if he went across the Rattan Pass into New Mexico, New Mexico was empty except for Santa Fe, whereas Colorado had a lot of mines and it had more population. So he thought it would be better just to wait a little bit in Colorado and then hit the pass once he'd sort of stocked up on money. Mm. Well, then William Barstow... Well, wait a minute. Was the pass owned by somebody? I mean, was it unclaimed? Oh, good question. The pass was owned by Uncle Dick Wooten. Now, Uncle Dick uh, um, was a strange character who was a mountain man who had inherited the key portion, or rather received uh, um, the key portion of the Rattan Pass from a guy named Maxwell of the Maxwell Grant. Now, the Maxwell Grant was the largest piece of private property in America. It was the size of Rhode Island. And the Hmm. Maxwell had given a little sliver of it uh, um, to Wooten because Wooten had saved his life after Maxwell had gotten shot up by some Indians. And Wooten came to his rescue, saved his life, and Maxwell said, hey, how about I give you 3,000 acres of the Rattan Pass? And Wooten said, fine, I'll take that, thank you. And then he put up a hostelry and a little toll road and regarded that whole portion of the Rattan Pass as his. So if these two railroad men were going to take the Rattan Pass, they had to strike a deal with Uncle Dick Wooten, and they had to be the first to do it. So the two of them, Palmer and Strong, for two months in early 1878, in January and February, they're trying to figure out 
what's the other going to do and what should I do? And that they're sending coded messages uh, um, back to, uh, the, amazingly, the, the Santa Fe was based in, uh, um, in Boston, of all places. And, and so he, they were sending strong ones, messages back to headquarters to find out what he should do. Meanwhile, uh, um, Palmer is sending messages out to his people in the field to ask what they think. Each one is intercepting the messages of the others, a game of spy versus <laughs> spy out there. And they're also shadowing each other to figure out what they're trying to do. And finally, um, strong figures that the way that he's, he's having trouble persuading the, the financiers in Boston that it's worth the money to go over the pass. It's going to cost a pant load to do it. But Strong is convinced that's the best way to California. He's begging and begging them to, to pony up the money and let's go. He finally, on February 28th, 1878, on February 28th, he finally gets um, permission from his Boston overlords at, at the corporation on Devonshire Street in Boston to go ahead. So he then puts his engineer on the train from Pueblo to the end of the line. This is a line that, that was actually owned by the Palmer's the, um, the Denver and Rio, Rio Grande Railroad, known as the Rio Grande. Mm-hmm. And it went all the way down to El, El Mara, which is just shy of where the Rattan Pass is. So the idea was that the Palmer was going to extend that line over the Rattan Pass. And, uh, and that if Strong was going to do it, he was going to build his own separate line to the Rattan Pass, cutting through at a different angle. But both of them, uh, both uh, so that the engineers, if they were going to get to the Rattan Pass uh, on that February 28th, the best way to do it was to get on board that train and hightail it to the Rattan Pass. Mm-hmm. So one of them gets on the, so there's an engineer from the um, Santa Fe that's there. And then Palmer starts getting really antsy and thinks, oh my God, I don't sense I, there's silence out there. It's getting a little creepy. They're up to something. I don't know what it is. Oh my God, I better get somebody on that train. He gets the engineer on the exact same train going all the way to El Moro. It's a small train, just three cars long. It's probably not very, um, it's not filled up. And they, those guys are able to sit apart. They, even though they Wait, knew do, each other, they'd never seen each other. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking about cat and mouse and spy games. So yeah. they, did they know that the other was on the train at the time? No, that's the thing. Each thought they were had the jump on the other. Mm. And neither realized that they had exactly the same jump. And neither, each knew that there might be somebody aboard that might possibly be connected to the other railroad. Neither man knew what the other one looked like. So they didn't know what to look for. And so they were both riding the same train all the way to El Moro. And they both arrived there at a little after 10 o'clock. One of them is a little sleepy and decides that it's dark. It's much better to um, get a little rest and then go up into the Rattan Pass and meet with Uncle Dick in the morning over coffee. That would make a much better negotiation. The other one says, I'm going to get there as fast as possible. And so he jumps onto a, a horse and carriage and goes, um, clattering up into the mountains and bangs on Uncle Dick's door. And Uncle Dick has just come out at a party that night and he's exhausted. Um, he comes down with his candle and he sees the engineer from the um, from Strong's Santa Fe Railroad and says, basically, what do you want? And they say, we're here to try and get the rights to, um, to the pass. Well, as it happened, Wooten had known all about that because one of the, the of Strong's people, a guy named Ray Morley, had been charting the pass while disguised, this shows the spy versus spy parts of it, <laughs> disguised as a Mexican shepherd with in a serape and a slouch hat and sheep. And that he's up with his sheep, seemingly just following the sheep all around the mountainside, <laughs> but actually writing down notes about inclines and angles of where he would put his train. And that and was Uncle Dick no, on to him? Did- Uncle Dick was on to him because he didn't really <laughs> like Palmer. Mm-hmm. Palmer had been kind of a 
of, of a bad actor in the area. He would do nasty things like build a railroad to about two miles from a town and then say, if you want me to go the rest of the way, you have to pony up more money. Mm. Uh, um, so like a whole extorting them essentially for the for a train. Wooten didn't like that. Wooten wanted to stick it to Palmer and he loved the Santa Fe. So when the Santa Fe came calling, he said, sure, fine. And let's get going now. Um, and so they're actually there. They that night at around 2 a.m. They set the first rails to go across the Rattan Pass. And then when the other engineer um, came charging up to the mountain like an hour and a half later, because he gets antsy, he thinks, oh, my God, I better get there, even though it is uh, um, still nighttime. Mm -hmm. He arrives too late. And he's in a fury, and he goes charging all over the mountainside trying to find another way to get over the pass. There isn't one. The Santa Fe Railroad has won the right (laughs) to the the Rattan Pass. (laughs) John Cedric is the author of From the River to the Sea, the untold story of the railroad war that made the West. We'll hear about yet another matchup between these two enterprising railway men where they frequently took the law into their own hands. That's just in one minute on Constant Wonder. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Our guest is John Sedgwick. He's the author of From the River to the Sea, the untold story of the railroad war that made the West. So this this wasn't the end of the rivalry. Uh, there was another kind of showdown at, at Royal Gorge, and this one got even... Um, Maybe more, a little Harrier. more scary. Yeah, Harrier. Things. Yeah. That's a great word. Um, but but let's start with why Royal Gorge was so important. Why did they both want it? Excellent question. Well, the Royal Gorge, um, is it was cut by the Arkansas River through the Rockies southwest of Denver. If it makes, it's a spectacular gorge. It's about a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred feet high at its height, and it's a very picture a very narrow V. So these towering cliffs on either side, angling down to a, a, a slender river, and there's a, a bed that the river travels along, but it's narrow, and there's room for only one set of tracks, and yet uh, um, it leads to the richest silver mine, not only in the West, but the entire world. For a railroad man, that's heaven, nirvana, and everything else. If you can get (laughs) to a a silver mine of that scope, you are made. And so both lines, once they learned that that the silver was there in abundance, they went nuts for it. But the thing was, there was only room for one set of tracks. So um, I guess Palmer kind of tried to draw attention away from Strong's efforts to get there. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, once again, okay, so that we've just gone through this battle with Rattan Pass, and Palmer is furious that this guy Strong, who is, you know, a newbie from Kansas, was able to swoop in and take the Rattan Pass that he'd been dreaming of taking for years. And he was not going to let Strong uh, um, win again. And yet what happened? Strong did indeed win again. That once both men realized that the silver mine was incredibly valuable, both men then set their eyes to actually seizing the gorge. But Strong was able to get his guys there faster. And it all came down to the same man, Ray Morley, um, the one who was dressed as a Mexican shepherd, Mm -hmm. that he, at a certain point, was able to get there. um, Palmer made sure that no Santa Fe guy could ride a Rio Grande train to get there. Uh, um, But he didn't count on Ray Morley's getting off the train and onto uh, uh, one of the fastest horses in the West, mm. King William, uh, uh, a fine steed, and Morley got onto his back and rode through the night. Uh, you know, you have to pick your way in the, in the darkness. Obviously, you can't go galloping along. But he, 
that um, he was able to ride uh, um, from a place called to um, from Pueblo, roughly to Canyon uh, um, City, which is at one end of the gorge. So King William uh, um, gets there before the, um, the engineer for the rival for Palmer's line can get there. This time, they come 45 minutes late. Before, it was an hour and a half. Right. The, the Scottish engineer was beside himself with fury. And then he started just madly setting down tracks of his own, even though he didn't think he may have the rights, but they were just going to do it and then let the courts decide. Well, so it becomes this unbelievable, crazy battle for these huge riches of this of the silver mine. And it 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 goes on several tracks. One of them is the legal track. I mean, who has the rights to this? Was it first come, first served? Or was there that apparently Palmer had laid out something called a plat, which is basically a, an earlier claim to the to this gorge, even before he set down any rails. Was that going to be valid? There was some question about a congressional act that might have invalidated it, or it might have validated it. So he set to the lawyers to work on that question. But then there was, there was just in the West, a lot of it is possession, and possession is enforced by force of arms. So he turned his uh, um, railroad workers into literal soldiers, that he had his men climb up on one side of the gorge and establish stone forts up there. And from there, they would roll boulders down onto the tracks mm. that the Santa Fe was trying to build. And if it knocked over any Santa Fe workers, so much the better. And then they, inf- and then they actually armed the soldiers up there and then and protected them behind these, the, the walls of the fort. Well, what did the Santa Fe do? The same thing. <laughs> it put up forts of its own on its side of the gorge and it reinforced them with soldiers. And there's what amounted to this Mexican standoff where they each were staring down at each other with rifles on their shoulders. Then it shifted to become a, um, a kind of a financial war of attrition. They were stuck there. Nobody could really build through the pass. It was costing both of them enormous amounts of money just to sit there while their costs were mounting legal costs, keeping all these soldiers in place. And the Santa Fe had more money because it had more had a longer line coming out from Kansas. So they were very much better positioned for this railroad war than the than Palmer was. So um, Strong says, "Okay, here's what I'm going to do for you. I am going to lease your line." because you don't have the money to pay for it. And so Palmer has to, his, his bondholders insist that he get the money that he can get, because this is otherwise they're going to get nothing. Mm-hmm. So he agrees to lease his entire uh, Rio Grande Railroad, all 337 miles of it, wherever it ran throughout the state. And um, so, he, and he turns it over on in December of that year, um, 1878, and most reluctantly. But he's a sneaky guy, and he try and he embeds in the agreement a couple of things that he thinks will allow him to take the railroad back. And one of them is that he arranges that if the Santa Fe doesn't pay him their regular monthly payments, that then he can claim his railroad back. Well, of course, the Santa Fe does make the monthly payments, but Palmer's Rio Grande makes a point of not receiving them. Mm. Uh, I don't know where that check went. Uh, um, Do you see it, Harry? I haven't seen that check. You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the checks weren't registered. And on that basis, he felt that they had violated their claim and that he was going to take it back. Meanwhile, he's waiting for the courts to rule uh, um, on on the central question of, of whether they had the right of way or not. And everybody's assuming that the Rio Grande did not have that right, that the right was all strong. Well, guess what? The Supreme Court said, no, actually, you do have the right. The railroad is your. You have the right to have the railroad, to run the railroad. Great, except that he doesn't have the railroad. It's been leased. Mm 
uh, um, and that he can't afford to buy it back. So what's he going to do? He <laughs> takes it by force. He dispatches soldiers throughout the state of Colorado to storm the barricades of wherever the Santa Fe was in possession of the line. You know, all the, the roundhouses, the stations, the tracks themselves. The, he sent soldiers to at gunpoint to push away the others that, um, that because and then got the state militia to back him up. Well, of course, Strong wasn't going to sit for that. And so that he had his own soldiers, some of them from Dodge City. Mm-hmm. Dodge City was where the, the, the Santa Fe had run through. Dodge City was, of course, the wickedest town in the West, and that it was headed up by the local sheriff, Bat Masterson. He gets Bat Masterson out to Colorado with some of Bat's best cowboys and their cleanest shooters who are there for a good time. And so that he stocks the state with Bat Masterson and people like that, while Palmer has his soldiers. Well, incredibly, the soldiers win. Bat Masterson proves to be not so effective in Colorado, as it turns out. So Palmer gets the rail line back, but he's still screwed because he can't, doesn't have the money to run it. So after two years of these battles, the thing is still at the same standoff it ever was, and that the only way it's resolved is yet the most powerful man in railroading and probably in the industrialized world sets, uh, steps in to settle the matter personally. And that man is Jay Gould, the most famous robber baron mm. of them all. <laughs> and he says that he's going to settle this because if they keep screwing around like this, it might actually interfere with the lines he wants to run because he, at that point, owns not just the Union Pacific, but also the Kansas Pacific. And that he doesn't want either of them encroaching on his territory. So he strikes this deal that, okay, we're going to give the Rio Grande the right to the, the, the richest mind in the West, up in a remarkable town called Leadville. And uh, we're going to let the Santa Fe uh, um, run wherever it wants in the Southwest. We're going to draw a line right through Pueblo between these two locations. And basically, the Santa Fe can go south and have all to the south. And the Palmer and his Rio Grande can go north. But they can't cross each other's territory. Well, that looks like it's a great deal for Palmer. That Leadville had become the richest silver mine in the West. As I said, it was pumping out silver like there was no tomorrow. And then then the mines started to peter out. And the money stopped flowing. Whereas Strong, his territory proved to be just incredibly valuable in large part because there was so much of it. He could go and go and go and go without being interfered with by Palmer. I mean, ultimately, and this is a separate story, he runs into an even more formidable adversary in the Southern Pacific um, in, once he tries to break into California. But he is sprung loose to go to California if he chooses. And so he gets California, and within California, he gets this little, sleepy Spanish Pueblo called Los Angeles mm. the, and turns Los Angeles into the megalopolis that it became. Because previously, it had only been San Francisco out there. San Francisco was like the capital of the state, not literally, but figuratively. And it wanted to keep Los Angeles down. Once um, Strong came in with a railroad, Los Angeles real estate boomed in value. The population went from 30,000 to 150,000 in just three years. It was the fastest growth of any city in the United States. Which is funny because you make it sound like Los Angeles is a a railroad town. You know, I would think of Los Angeles as a port because, you know, it's close to the ocean. But but no. Uh, No, isn't that amazing? It is a railroad town. It was made by the railroad. Its port was puny in part because San Francisco wanted to make sure that its port was like the major port. And that um, nobody made any use of not only Los Angeles, but all of Southern California. It was a vacant, um, those were just vacant lots down there 
for years until the Santa Fe came in. And there was this other railroad there that based in, in California called the Southern Pacific, but that it was the one that wanted to keep San Francisco to be like the, the only game in town. It wanted to keep Los Angeles down. And so when the Santa Fe arrived in Los Angeles, it engaged in a railroad um, rate war, I mean, a price war that, um, that drove a tic- the price of a ticket from Chicago to Los Angeles down from $125, which was a lot, to one. A single solitary dollar would get you from Chicago to Los Angeles, and people came in like there was no tomorrow. Mm. Uh, the, people were sleeping in bathtubs. They were sworn real estate offices. That, um, um, were built up. There were like 2,000 in Los Angeles itself. The, the Riverside, Pasadena, the, um, San Bernardino, and then this little place called Hollywood, all of them uh, um, started booming uh, um, once the um, once these people came in with money and, and it just transformed Los Angeles and made it what it is today. And so that was the doing of the Santa Fe Railroad, and it was the doing, it it came from the fact that Jay Gould had awarded them the rights after this uh, um, confrontation with Strong. And so, I I have to admit, I hadn't heard of either Strong nor Palmer before. um, I'm shocked. (laughs) Before your book, which is is a good reason for your book uh, coming into being. But what was their legacy towards the end of their lives and, and then, you know, are they, maybe some other people know of them, and, and I just didn't. Well, interestingly enough, you get remembered in history if you leave a lot of records and letters and journals behind. That's one of the quirks. That It's not so much heroism or the dimension of your personality. It's how much information is left behind about you. There's almost nothing of strong, but there's lots about Palmer. And of the two... Palmer has, I would say, a sort of a regional um, profile that he he's a man of the West. And he did something in the West that, that is well remembered today. He he created the town of Colorado Springs, you know, which is now famous for its university and also, you know, for its its beauty as a well-established place. And, and that Colorado Springs, interestingly enough, was built by him to attract this woman he loved uh, that he had met on a train uh, uh, going through Iowa that he she had come into his compartment to accompany uh, um, her father who was deep in discussions with um, Palmer about possibly funding his railroad well that was the sort of thing that commanded Palmer's interest completely until this woman showed up Queenie, she was called, Queen Palmer, a rapturous 18-year-old beauty with long, curly hair that went down over her shoulders, and one look, and he was smitten. He proposed to her within two weeks by letter, never having seen her again. And she was from Flushing, New York. She'd never been west, and that she decided that, um, sure, <laughs> why not? I'll marry this general, even though at that and point... How old is he at this he point? He was twice his age. Oh. He, was, he was in his 40s. She was a mere 18. Hmm. I mean, the, the discrepancy was enormous. And, you know, she, he had this history in the Civil War. She was just a kind of a socialite whose major interests were um, going to the symphony and to the museum and all these East Coast pleasures. And he thought that if he just built up Colorado Springs enough, make it this cultural scene, that maybe she'd be happy to live there with him. And he built for her a castle called Glen Airy that ended up having... I think it was built and built and built. He kept revising it. It was it had 60 rooms, I think, by the time he was done. It was the most extraordinary thing, certainly in Colorado Springs and possibly in much of the West. Uh, um, but he, bought, he built it to lure her West to live with him in splendor. Well, 
Um, she's a girl from Flushing. And when she gets there um, in 1872. So how, how long, how much time has passed since he proposed till she gets there? And the castle so is pro- built up before she gets there? Yeah. Right. So here's the, so he proposes in, I think, 1871. They don't actually meet again for another year because he's busy trying to make Colorado Springs look like something. And when she arrives there almost a year later, it, it, he's desperate to see her, desperate to show her off, show her off the, the Rockies, which, you know, send him into a swoon. And she gets off the stagecoach that delivers her, looks around and sees nothing but mud. There's hardly anything built. And despite his efforts, it's mm. still it's slow going out there. There are a few shacks. Well, it's only been There's a year. <laughs> I know. Well, that's, that's what he said. Uh, but she says, what? <laughs> Where do I live? What are we going to do here? And um, she'd come with an English friend named Rose Kingsley, who then was, writes about this far more than she does. And she says that when she got out there, there was just nothing to see. And and worse still, um, the, so Palmer takes her around to Queens Canyon, which is uh, which he named for her because he thought it was such a beautiful place to be it was and in the summertime it is but this was late winter or beginning of spring and it was still kind of a a rack of slush and ice Mm. and some boys are there with them and the boys said hey come over here i want to show you the site where a settler got slaughtered by indians it's fascinating (laughs) come look right here right here's where it happened and queen goes cold she goes because her her uncle actually had not long before was a settler out in the West. He had been slaughtered by some Indians that he invited over for what he thought would be a friendly dinner. And they shot him. And um, so and that set the, the army against those Indians. And it was like a small war that had developed. The queen was very anxious about Indians. And then to top it off on that visit, another Indian comes by with some ponies and sees this girl, Queen Palmer, who's, who he thinks is eligible, and offers uh, um, ponies in exchange for marriage to Queen Palmer. Well, this, this is not is going not well. She wants to, it's not <laughs> going well. So she goes east and sort of vows never to come again. But it, but in the end, he, he, she does come back and gives it a go, but her heart is just not in it. And the marriage doesn't go well. Colorado Springs is not the place for her. And she ends up relocating to uh, um, outside of London, of all places, where she sets up a salon. A kind of, she's very intellectual and educated and sets up a, a salon in a, in a place called Item Moat uh, um, that the English set up in literally from the, I think, 16th century. It was this amazing stone castle, I suppose, with water running by it. And people like um, John Singer Sargent and Oscar Wilde and other luminaries would come visit. But that's where she that's where she insisted on staying, and, and the marriage uh, just limped along. Uh, they never divorced, although they were divorced in spirit, and, and she died there, and he was beside himself. Mm. Wow. Well, I'm going to think about Colorado Springs with just a more romantic view from now on. I had no idea about oh, yeah. the development of the city was really a— um, a gift to to a, a wife. Uh, that that's really actually yeah. quite a sweet story. Well, J- very sweet. John Sedgwick, thank you so much for visiting with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it too. John Sedgwick is the author of From the River to the Sea: The Untold Story of the Railroad War That Made the West. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Palmer's dream of turning Colorado Springs into a cultured paradise for his bride was just one man's attempt to remake the West and his own legacy. We'll explore more myth-making in the American West in just one minute here on Constant Wonder. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. According to H.W. Brands, the story of the West, more than anything, is a story of reinventing oneself and society. And that promise, that allure of making something more of yourself, well, it inspired even the likes of Theodore Roosevelt. 
Here's a highlight of Marcus Smith's conversation with University of Texas history professor H.W. Brands about his book, Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West. I wrote the book because I'm a Westerner myself. I grew up in Oregon, and my earliest memories were of the Oregon Trail. My grandparents had a summer house that was literally right on one of the western reaches of the Oregon Trail. And so I grew up surrounded by these stories. I would hear stories originally read to me, and then I would read them myself. Uh, historical novels aimed at kids. And one was called Children of the Covered Wagon. And it was about this family. It was actually based on a true story uh, of kids who lost their parents as they were coming west. And so they sort of had to make their way. And I imagined that I was one of these kids. I got an earlier start on hiking than you just described. So I, I was hiking from the time I could walk. And I would hike around through the Mount Hood National Forest, where the, my grandparents' summer house was. So this is something that was uh, sort of in my blood long before I thought I'd be an author or a historian or anything like that. And so I, I didn't really think that I would be writing a history of the West until I got a little bit closer. After college, I became a traveling salesman. And I was working for a cutlery company, and I would travel. I had a territory that spanned from Oregon to Colorado. And so I would drive across, basically, the ground that the Oregon Trail had covered and that the tens of thousands of immigrants from the Mississippi and Missouri Valleys out to the West Coast went. And as I drove across the land, I imagined what it looked like. I realized that I was in an odd situation being uh, a West Coaster, because to me, when I got to Denver, Denver was a thousand miles east yeah. <laughs> of where I had been. And so my perspective was different. But so it was this that got me sort of tuned to the whole idea of the West. But there was one particular moment that stuck in my head from the time I was young. And that is, so on one of these hikes um, from my grandparents' house in the Mountain National Forest, we would we went on, it turned out it was one of my, my grandmother's favorite hikes. And it was not a long or particularly arduous hike. It was relatively short. And it, it wasn't on a trail that was obviously carved out of the forest. It looked like an old abandoned road. And I remember running down the, the road and the hike, one of the reasons my grandmother liked it was because it was short. It was maybe half, three quarters of a mile. And I remember running down to the end of the trail. And at the end of the trail, there was a pile of rocks. And I was a nine-year-old kid. And what does a nine-year-old boy do with rocks? You pick them up and start throwing them. And my grandmother, who almost never raised her voice, yelled at me and said, stop, you cannot do that. And I had no idea what she was talking about until she explained that this was not simply a pile of rocks. This was a cairn that marked the burial spot of one of the pioneers. Now, this was back in the or very early 1960s. And this grave site had only recently been uncovered by highway construction crews who were rerouting the, the highway. And it turned out that this woman, it was a woman, and she was, well, even to this day in Oregon, she's only identified as the pioneer woman. This was the pioneer woman's grave. And I remember as this nine-year-old kid thinking, what is she doing buried here? And what's her story? Now, that probably stuck in the back of my head. But by the time I finally got around to, well, thinking of writing about the West, it was one of those, this, this was one of the things that got me thinking about. So what was her story? And what was the story of all the other people who came West? And, and what were, well, you mentioned the title of the book, Dreams of Old Water. What were the dreams that drew her to undertake this arduous journey from the eastern half of the United States to the far West? So that's kind of the origins of the book. In order to cover so much ground, you can look at it just geographically and say the West, uh, half, half the country, you know, from the Mississippi westward, I suppose, to the Pacific. But you can also look at the, the broad sweep of humanity between the unnamed pioneer woman all the way up to the luminaries like Theodore Roosevelt, who saw himself as a Westerner. And that's a vast amount of space to cover, too. It is. One of my biggest problems was deciding sort of what West I was going to write about and what time period I was going to focus on. So if it's history of the American West, what chronologically is history and what exactly is the West? Because the West for the United States began in what we would call the suburbs of Jamestown 
1607. You know, if you could throw a rock beyond the walls of Jamestown, that was the West. And the, but the West kept moving West over time. And I didn't want to write the history of Kentucky, which was America's original West. And it's a great story, but it wasn't the one I wanted to tell, because when you talk about American West today, you're not talking about Kentucky. You might be talking about Colorado, certainly you know Utah and the West Coast states. Are you also talking about Kansas? Uh, maybe. So I had to figure out what was the West and what time period. And the two, the answers to the two questions came at the same time. So I decided that I was going to focus on the Trans-Mississippi West. So that really gets us everything through the western half of the continent. And the reason I focused that on that was that it was the, the, the part of the American West that was stable for the longest period of time. I mentioned Kentucky. Kentucky was a part of the West, but not for very long because it filled up pretty quickly. And then it began to look very much like the eastern states. So the state of Kentucky, after the first 25 years, looked a lot like the state of Virginia, from which it, Kentucky was originally part of Virginia. So the Trans-Mississippi West, though, was different for almost a century, and the century was actually the one that begins with the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. The United States had no claim to territory west of the Mississippi River until the Louisiana Purchase. So that's when my story begins, and I carry it up to basically a century, up to the beginning of the 20th century, and I cut it off there largely because when you get to the 20th century, the West begins to look more and more like the East. So if I talk about California in the 1850s, California in the 1850s is a world apart from the Eastern United States. In the 1950s, eh, California looks a lot like you know, Atlanta or, or uh, states in the East. So the story that I tell is the Trans-Mississippi West during essentially the 19th century. Now, the thing that really strikes me is the title still, Dreams of El Dorado, because it seems that uh, you could look at time, you could look at the demographics, you could look at the geography, but it seems that you're going for motives of the human heart, people struggling for, for prosperity. Well, that's exactly right. To me, that's what made the West important in the history of the United States. So this is a history of the American West, but it's also a history of the United States. Because it's an American West we're talking about, and it's worth bearing in mind, this has historical ramifications, also current political ramifications, that the West I'm speaking of was politically a creature of the national government. It was an American West. It was owned by the people of the United States before it was claimed by people of any particular state. So this was America's West, and it meant a great deal in the American psyche. Over a long period of time, the West, even an earlier West, had always been a place where people could go if things didn't work out so well wherever they were. In this sense, Virginia was a place where people in England could go. Massachusetts Bay Colony was a people where in England could go when things weren't working out so well in England. And this idea, the idea of the West, the dream of the West, was always as important in American history as the reality of the West. So it's a matter of, for the historian, of balancing out the dreams and the reality. And the dreams are sometimes quite grand. So some of the people who went west to California seeking gold hoped they would make a huge fortune or they would get a great deal of land or they would you know, do something. Uh, other people, a lot of people who went to California just figured, all right, I hear the wage rate is pretty high in California. A person can make a lot of money and I'll go out there for a couple of years and I'll make as much as it might take me 10 years to earn if I stay wherever I am in Pennsylvania, New York. And it'll allow me to buy that farm or allow me to start a business. So they weren't dreaming of becoming immensely wealthy. They just wanted to, to sort of kickstart their life or their career. But in almost every case, and, and, and I should add that the dreams were mostly material, but not entirely material. One of the things that I discovered was that a whole lot of people went west for their health. In the Missouri Valley, in the Mississippi Valley, malaria was endemic. And people would go west, hoping that they would escape it. People went for religious reasons. Uh, the Mormons went out west. I mean, the reason they went to Utah was so they could get out of the United States. Ironically, by the time they got there and got settled, 
Um, Utah had been claimed by the United States, so that part didn't work. But everybody imagined that the West was a place where they would do better than they were doing wherever they were. And one of the consequences of this dreaming thing is that the West kind of acted as a filter on existing societies, existing places in society. So the really wealthy people didn't go West. Why would you leave New York or Boston if you were eminently successful there? And at the same time, really poor people didn't go West for the most part because you had to have some resources to buy the wagon or the mules or to get the kit to go mine gold or whatever it was. So the West is the part of the country that really gives birth to American democracy because in the West, people were more equal than they were in the East. And so there's this great appeal of the West. It's the place of opportunity. It's the the birthplace of American democracy. It's, it's where people can really, they can succeed on their own terms. They can do as well as their talents and their energy will allow them to do. Well, a little earlier I mentioned Theodore Roosevelt, and you just now just talked about really rich people not moving out west. And I guess that presents the question, did he ever really move west at all, even if he was there in body? And maybe he was there in spirit. I don't see him as really, for whatever he wanted to think of himself as, he he never really moved west. Theodore Roosevelt was never a westerner, but he played one on the political stump. And for Roosevelt, the idea of the west, so I mentioned the various reasons that people would go west. In Roosevelt's case, it was to prove himself as a hunter, to prove himself as a ranchman, because he got it in his head that the hunter the ranchman. He wouldn't have called himself a cowboy because he didn't work for somebody else, but he had his own ranch. This was the model of manly success. And and achieving that kind of success for his own benefit, uh, for his own satisfaction, was really important to Roosevelt. So he bought a ranch in Dakota Territory. The ranch didn't do very well. He got frozen out during the terrible winter of 1886 and 1887. He lost half of his inheritance He was basically somebody who could play at being a rancher because he had a lot of money to spend. But he identified with the West, and more importantly, he became identified with the West in the popular mind. So Roosevelt never spent an entire year in the West, even when he owned his ranch. He would go out there during the summer and he'd go back to New York during the winter. But he... He made it clear that he really thought the West was in some ways his spiritual home. He, re- he realized at some point that you're never going to be president of the United States if people identify you with New York City, not in the age of American democracy in the 19th century, the early 20th century. So he portrayed himself as this Westerner, and he became really famous as leader of the Rough Riders. And this is the bunch of cowboys and literally Indians who go off to fight in the Spanish-American War. So the idea of the West was something that Roosevelt could really carry a long way, eventually all the way to the White House. H.W. Brands is a history professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's the author of Dreams of El Dorado, A History of the American West. He was speaking there with Marcus Smith. I'm Tenery Taylor. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.